Well, let's pray together. Father, as we come to this text, uh, we ask for your help to understand your revelation, uh, appropriate especially as we look at a text like this about mysteries that human minds and knowledge cannot conceive apart from your help. And so we ask that you would give us insight and give us knowledge and that you would help us to see your glory and the glory of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So if you were with us last week, uh, we started the book of Daniel where we were introduced to Daniel and his friends, these young teenage Jewish exiles who are taken from their homeland by the king of Babylon, and they're brought to Babylon, and this is where they are going to live the rest of their lives, in exile, in a place where from the average citizen to the elites and the important people above them do not share their faith, do not share their core convictions, their belief in the God of Israel and wanting to follow him, but rather they worship other gods. And as we turn to Daniel chapter 2, we're still early on in this story, a few years after they've been brought to Babylon, and we read in verse 1 of the text that Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. Now, this may not seem immediately important to us. You have dreams, I'm assuming. I have dreams. For some reason, I tend to have uh, really terrifying or weird dreams when I consume too much salt before going to bed. I don't know if anyone else has this experience. When Aaron and I used to live in Philadelphia, there was this bar, Union Jacks, that made the best wings I've ever had. And of course, they were just packed with sodium. But it was basically a guarantee when I would consume these wings that I would wake up in a terror or I would have like the strangest, most vivid dream I'd ever had. And they were always very interesting, but they didn't affect my life. So we turn to this text, right, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar, he is obsessed with his dreams. He he is adamant that he has to figure out what his dream means and what's going on here. Well, in every culture, there is a way or multiple ways that we seek to gain knowledge, how we think that we can get knowledge. And this is important because every culture that has ever existed, we know that there are certain things that we have to understand and that we have to know to live life. And the big word for this, if you're a philosophy person, right, how we know what we know, theory of knowledge, is epistemology. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, one of the sources of knowledge is divination. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was believed that the activity of the gods left signs and marks in the world. And so just like we might want to know what's going to happen in the financial markets in the next year, what's going to happen with S&P 500 or the Dow or the housing market, so that we can have a sense of control of our lives and a sense of knowing what we should do, how we should plan and live, the people of the ancient Near East sought insight into their lives. It was commonly accepted that uh, the gods would leave marks or signs in places like the heavenly bodies, and so you would look to the stars or the movement of planets. Um, it, it was uh, also thought that, this might sound strange, that the gods left messages to be interpreted 
in the inner organs of animals. And so you would look at the organs, the liver, uh, different parts of animals that had been sacrificed, and you would consult these books, extipacy manuals, which are these really cool books that teach you how to interpret signs in a goat liver or something like that to know what the gods are saying or the gods communicated in dreams. In the ancient Near East, messages from the gods were believed to come in dreams. And so the Egyptians and the Babylonians had dream books. And so what one might do is look at these books and look at uh, past dreams and interpretations of those dreams to then try to say, well, what does this dream mean? And you remember Daniel's training in uh, the literature of Babylon chapter 1 last week. This would have included these kind of texts. Celestial omen texts, those really cool extipacy manuals, and uh, potentially dream books. And this is why verse 2 of our text, you'll see, the king summons the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers because you have to know what this dream means. Your life, your kingdom depends upon it. And so, just as we heard, uh, read a few minutes ago, when this group of wise men are assembled, Nebuchadnezzar says to them, verse 5, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into a pile of rubble. But this isn't how it's supposed to work, right? And the wise men are like, "You, you have to tell us the dream, Tell us the dream, and then we'll do our thing, and we'll tell you what the dream means. But Nebuchadnezzar, for some reason, doesn't trust them. I mean, what he knows is, if you can tell me my dream, then I'll know that you can interpret it rightly. And when they say, that is impossible, no one has ever asked anything like this, he gets so furious, right, that he says, okay, well then all the wise men are going to die, which includes Daniel and his friends. And so we get this guy, Arioch, the commander of the king's guard. He's going out to carry out this order, and Daniel meets him, figures out what's going on, is able to buy a little bit of time, and then he does what none of the wise men did. Verse 18, he and his fellow Jewish exiles, they pray. Daniel urged them to plead for mercy you have a pen, underline God of heaven or note it in your mind. We're going to see this repeated again and again. To plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. They pray because unlike the wise men of Babylon who said earlier in verse 11, no one can reveal this mystery to the king except the gods and they don't live among humans. The God of Israel The God of heaven does reveal mysteries. And so the way to get the understanding that we need is not to go on an endless speculation sort of search of the universe for signs, but by the God of heaven revealing it to us. And this is what happens in verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. And note the repetition, right? Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Because the revealing of this mystery shows what we saw in Daniel chapter 1. Though it may not appear this way, God is in control. Because God is the one who's able to 
to make known this mystery that none of the wise men of Babylon and no one else could figure out shows that he is the one who's really in control. And this is why Daniel praises God not only for his wisdom but also his power. He says, verse 21, he disposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom and knowledge. God knows things that we can't possibly know. He knows things that are in the darkness and he reveals deep and hidden things. Now let's consider for a second you know, what, what this means for us, connected to our lives a little bit. Uh, we need knowledge. There are things that we need to know to live life well. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, there are things we need to know and things that ultimately we can't figure out on our own. Now, largely in the West, if we're seeking to build uh, our lives upon knowledge, often it is knowledge through science, through what can be tested and empirically proven. And I'm grateful for science and for all of the things that we have because of science. But sometimes in our culture, there can be such an emphasis on getting truth from science that science becomes the only place where we can get truth. And so what we're left is not with science, but with scientism. That it becomes an ism. That in a sense, all we need is science. And if we could just gather enough data, and if we could just analyze it, then we would be able to figure out all of our problems. But there are certain things that science can't tell you. Science can't tell you what a meaningful and significant life looks like. And science can't tell you what your purpose is. And science can't tell you what a human being is for, and it can't tell you who you are. And you have to know these things to live. And so what's happened for some time now is that these questions of meaning and purpose and identity, they're almost in a sense ruled out from the start. Or someone might say, well, you really can't know those things. You can't know your purpose. I mean, what, what's your purpose? I don't know. You have to just create it. And you have to create your identity, your meaning. You have to create your purpose. You might even have to create what's right and what's wrong for you because there are no answers to these things. The only things that we can know are the things that we can test in a lab. But as philosopher Alvin Plantinga says, he says, this argument is like the drunk man who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light was better there. Do you see his point? He's saying, it's like saying, because I can see this, I can understand this, this must be the truth that I need to live. But what if the truth is over here? What if there is truth that we can't actually get at through science, but I absolutely need it to live? What if it's in the dark, but we need it? We need meaning we need purpose, we need significance, we need to know who we are, we need to know what we're made for. And I think all we have to do really is to look at our culture, to look at the confusion at times. If you've ever 
had a deep conversation with someone else about these sorts of things or asked them, what do you think your purpose is? Or is there hope for the world? These sorts of questions. And you start to see this sense in which we don't really know where we are. We're in the dark and we're just scrambling around for answers. And sometimes we're sad. Sometimes we're just apathetic about it. Sometimes we're hopeless. Sometimes we're angry like King Nebuchadnezzar. We, like the Jewish exiles, the people of Babylon, we need knowledge that we really can't get on our own. We need the God of heaven who reveals mysteries. Let's turn back to our story. Uh, since we didn't read all of this, I want to read at least part of the text. So if you would, follow along with me. I'm going to pick up at verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, to whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what the dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Notice what he says. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in the days to come. In your dream and in the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation, that you may know and understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, pause. Are we following what's going on so far, right? Nebuchadnezzar's dream is of this statue, and it has four parts. And in verses 36 and following, Daniel is going to interpret what the dream means. And basically, each of these four parts represents a different kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and after him there are going to be three other kingdoms. Don't worry about the details right now. This comes up again in chapter 7, and so we're going to unpack it more there. So you have these four kingdoms, and then you have this rock that smashes the statue. Let's jump down to verse 44, where Daniel gives the interpretation of the rock. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Okay. Now consider what this dream means for exiles, Daniel and his friends. For what it means for all of us who follow Jesus, 
right? We said last week, who say to Jesus, your kingdom come. And so the Bible would say to us that we are exiles in this world. This revelation says to you, hold on. Keep waiting. Though it may not appear this way, all of the earthly kingdoms will fall. They will not be remembered. But God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom is coming. The mystery that God reveals to Daniel, the the revelation that his fellow Jewish friends and Daniel himself need, the revelation they need to live as exiles in a foreign land, the revelation they need to cling to and they need to build their lives upon is that the God of the Bible, the one who does reveal mysteries, who draws near to his people, who helps them and gives them insight, he is bringing his kingdom into this world. And so hold on and wait for it. I want you to think about, for a moment, technology. Have you ever been in a situation where you were going to buy maybe a new car or a new TV or a new phone or a new computer, and for some reason, you waited? So when I lived in Delaware, uh, one of my good friends, fellow campus minister with RUF, uh, just down the street, Delaware State, um, Daryl Watley, He was like the tech guy in RUF. So if you had a tech question, you emailed Daryl. The lovely piano uh, keyboard that we got for the church, that came through Daryl. I emailed Daryl. I said, Daryl, what kind of keyboard should we get? And he was like, you got to get this one, man. So anyways, Daryl's the tech guy. And I remember a few years ago, I was thinking about getting a new Mac computer. And I asked Daryl, what do you think? What do you think about the Mac computers at this time? I don't remember when this was if you're a real techie person. But Daryl said to me, don't buy. They have all sorts of issues right now. There's all these kinds of and techie stuff that I didn't understand. He goes, you got to wait. You got to wait till next year. You got to wait till next fall because they're going to come out with a new model and it's going to fix all of the stuff that's messed up in this one. Don't buy. You got to wait. And what Daniel 2 is saying to us is, don't buy into the kingdoms of this world. Don't put the weight of your life here. Because these kingdoms, the kingdoms that we make, that we rule, they have fatal flaws. They have inconsistencies. They they will not last. They are not going to last forever. So wait for this coming kingdom. A wise person invests their life, spends the currency of their life in something that is going to last, that isn't temporary, that isn't full of instabilities. I want you to think about Daniel for a second, right? Daniel is a teenager when he goes into exile, and he's going to be in exile until he is an old man. And he's no longer even under Babylon anymore, but he's under one of those other kingdoms. I want you to think about where are you in your life? Are you young? Where are you investing your life? Where are your dreams being held? What if you invest your life in the equivalent of the iPhone 13? which might be really cool right now, but in a matter of months is going to be old news, and in a matter of years is going to be completely obsolete. I remember in RUF, um, one of the grad students that was in our group, my experience, grad students are poor. Uh, He was poor. When I was a grad student, I was poor. He had an iPhone 4. 
not a 4S, a 4. This was like a few years ago. His phone was so obsolete that he couldn't even access the app store anymore. Like, it, it, I'm not sure what his phone was useful for. But think about that. What if you are investing your life in something that is basically that? Where are you? Are you in the middle of your life? What are you investing in? Are you a parent? What are you and I teaching our kids to invest in, both by what we say to them, but also the way that we live our lives? Are you older? Where are you going to give your remaining years, however long God gives you strength? Here's the amazing thing about the revelation of this mystery of God's kingdom. As you move into the New Testament, this text is one of the primary places where Jesus gets his vision of the kingdom. I mean, really, the book of Daniel is so important to Jesus' vision of the kingdom. And you remember that Jesus goes around and he is preaching the kingdom. And you have to imagine the excitement of, of the Jewish people who are, you know, following him and are thinking, the kingdom is coming like we're going to like Rome is going to be crushed but how does the kingdom come once again god does what no human being could have come up with that we would have never planned that we would have never orchestrated the wisdom and the power of god in jesus brings the everlasting kingdom through the cross through what looks like weakness and failure through suffering, through death. I want you to just listen to the way Paul speaks of the gospel. Romans 16, 25 and 26. The gospel is spoken of as the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians chapter 1, 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery according to to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 7 and 9. We declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it has been written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor human heart conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. The gospel is God's best mystery revealed. By your own wisdom, you could never figure out what God was up to in the world, but the gospel reveals that mystery to you. Ephesians chapter 1, what we just read, you would never with any confidence be able to know that God cares for you, let alone that he loves you, that he wants you to belong to him in his kingdom, and yet the gospel reveals that mystery to you. 
you would never have come up with the way in which God was going to bring about his glorious kingdom, how he was going to forgive our sin, how he was going to uphold his justice and deal with evil and show his power and his wisdom. But the gospel reveals that mystery. The God of heaven reveals mysteries. Where is the debater of this age? That's what Paul asks. Has the world come to know God through our wisdom, through our knowledge? The only one who can reveal such amazing and wonderful mysteries is the God who in his great faithfulness did come to live among men and who died and who rose again that it would not be by human wisdom or human power or human ingenuity, but it would be by grace that we would know him and belong to him. It's in light of this God who reveals such wonderful mysteries that I want to invite us to turn to a time of prayer. That we would praise him for such grace and mercy toward us, telling us things that we would never have been able to figure out apart from him. But also, perhaps spending some time naming and confessing those ways that we have sinned against him, perhaps ways that we have tried to make life work without him. I'll give us a few moments for silent prayer to do that, and then in a short time, I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray.